Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. Today, we're delving into the question, why am I still alone? The rates of people who live alone are the highest they've been in over a century. Compared to life a hundred years ago, fewer people are marrying. There are more single parent families than ever recorded and more people are living together but not getting the piece of paper to confirm it. When you think about it, we spend so much of our lives as part of families or social groups, but not with romantic partners, both at the end and beginning of our lives, even if there is a romance story in the middle. Being alone is a normal part of being human. So why is so much of our culture built around people having a romantic partner? We think this topic is really important because it's about who we are as people, living in a diverse society and finding places to belong. Maybe the issue of being single is more accepted and even celebrated in parts of the world, but in some churches, single people sometimes feel like they're missing out on something important. So the word itself, single, the English word single, we kind of throw it around and assume that we're all on the same page when we use this word. In a kind of secular context, it can mean one thing. In a Christian context, it can mean another thing. And even within each of those contexts, there can be very different nuances to it. My name is Amy Isham. Joining us on the podcast today is Dr. Danielle Treweek. Danny did her PhD in singleness from a theological and anthropological or human-centered perspective. She's gone on to write a scholarly book called The Meaning of Singleness and is in the process of writing a more accessible one too. Danny blogs on her Substack and I really enjoy watching her speak her mind on Twitter. Danny, thanks so much for joining us on Deeper Questions. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. It's great to be here. So we've talked about this a bit before, but uh, you and I both managed to finish our PhDs in 2020, but yeah. you got yours done a little bit earlier than mine. What time did you get yours done? I managed to get mine submitted, the dissertation submitted about a week before Australia went, well, Sydney went into its first COVID lockdown in 2020. So it was perfectly timed on my end in that sense. And I did feel for people who were still trying to work and finish their thesis and their research during those crazy couple of years, really. Yeah. 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 Mine were mostly revisions by then, but oh yeah, it was, it was really hard work. Yeah, I actually submitted mine because it was submitting it online in my local cafe. And, you know, there was even something very poignant about that a week later when suddenly you couldn't sit in your local Mm -hmm. cafe. Um, So, yes, I was very thankful for God's timing in that sense. Yes. And um, another thing I really like, because I do follow you on Twitter, I've noticed you sort of take down a couple of those big blokes who are in their 50s, 60s, and they've got big churches and you just go in there and challenge them on things. Um, Where do you get your confidence? I think it's naivety more than confidence, to be completely honest. People don't tend to believe this, but I'm actually conflict adverse. I do not like conflict at all, but I'm also someone who processes things by dialoguing. So I think that there is a general sense of naivety that I just kind of go, oh yeah, I want to talk about this with this person. They've said this thing. So let's talk about it without actually at times realizing, oh, this is a bit complicated in terms of who I'm talking to and what that might be perceived to be looking like from the outside. Oh, no, I I love it. Oh, good. Okay. I just like treating people. I treat people as people Mm. whose ideas are worth engaging with. And, um, you know, on social media, you just got to open yourself up to the knowledge that even when you write things with the best of intentions and with the most careful tone that you possibly can, it's always going to be open to misinterpretation. And so my sort of approach is that I need to be confident in my own conscience and the way that I approach things and try to read people in general in good faith in that way as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it total naivete. I think it's kind of a just, yeah, putting, reading things at face value as much as possible. I think it's, it's really great to see because a lot of people don't. So what I want to get into is, so we have kind of have sections. So we're in the below the surface sections. We're starting to submerge. So Mm -hmm. we'll get into your book. I think I'm up to chapter four or like part three. I know I'm in part three. Yep. I know it's aimed at a Christian audience, the many of singleness, because you're looking at a theological Mm. point of view, which is obviously Mm. from the Bible. But um, I think there's some really important things to unpack for people that wouldn't call themselves religious. So especially that historical survey you did of families and marriage and how that's what that's been like throughout history. So can we go right back in time and explore the meaning of the word single? 
Yeah, we can. Uh, And that's one of the things that I had to really focus on very early in my research and then in the book is that this word does a lot of heavy lifting. We expect it to do a lot of heavy lifting. We, We kind of throw it around and assume that we're all on the same page about what we mean when we use this word. In a a kind of secular context, it can mean one thing. In a Christian context, it can mean another thing. Sometimes there's overlapping, sometimes there's different. And even within each of those contexts, uh, there can be very different nuances to it. And so the word itself, single, the English word single is, as you would expect when you look at sort of the, you know, the etymology of language, it's, it's only about five, six hundred years old as a word. And it came, I think, from like the old French or something, which just meant one. It didn't have anything else kind of attached to it. We've sort of loaded it with meaning. That means that when we look at history, particularly sort of, you know, history before the Enlightenment and the Reformation and that kind of general period, we're not looking for singleness to understand the unmarried life. There's all sorts of other concepts and and words Mm. that are used. And again, because I was particularly looking at Western understandings of this, that was very much caught up in a kind of Christian church context. And so the language historically was very much language like virginity. Um, and abstinence and purity and chastity uh, and widowhood and all of those things. Whereas today we tend to use language much more ambiguously. When is someone single? Is it that they're just not married or is someone who's been in sort of, you know, a dating relationship for five, six months or something might still consider themselves single because they kind of haven't taken a step in their mind that means they're no longer single. There's a lot of ambiguity which means that we actually have to be careful in the way that we're using the word and talking about it with each other, that we're not assuming we all mean exactly the same thing. Mm, Yeah, and that's that separation of when we use language, defining our terms so important. So I think Mm. that's a really good start to it. So you also said, and you you started touching on this, is that uh, in your book you said that the word single doesn't really encapsulate what it means for a person and the complexity of what that means for a person. So as you said, in the old days, it meant, oh, they were a virgin or they were unmarried, they were widows. There was very distinct terms defining what kind of singleness, single status they were in, but now it's a lot more vague. So can we delve into that a little bit more? What do you think are the main things going on in a single person's life in modern culture? Well, again, it depends on who that person is and the context in which they're living it out. And also it's very easy to fall into caricatures as well. There's there's an extent to which a stereotype is valid and mm. sort of making generalisations is valid. But then very quickly you cross that line and you end up in caricature where people kind of look and go, well, I don't recognise that in myself. So broadly, stereotypically, there's a sense, I think, in, in the secular world around us in which singleness is both seen to be kind of this liberated existence of absolute freedom and, you know, self-indulgence, whilst at the same time, paradoxically, being kind of a bit of a, at times, pitiable uh, life because this freedom you have is actually not true fulfilment. Mm. And so I think that is amplified in the church. And I don't know how quickly you want to sort of move into talking about the church, but in the church, there is also that paradox at work um, at times as well. And so where every individual single sort of locates themselves within that generalisation is going to be different. And as we were talking about before, you know, we can talk about singleness being simply unmarried versus married, but even mm-hmm. in the category of unmarried, there's a whole lot of other context. So in a secular context, there's a lot of people in de facto relationships who are not married, but would not call themselves single. In the Christian context, it tends to be a little bit more black and white in that sense. But even in simply the unmarried category in the the church, you've got those who have never been married like myself. Uh, You've got those who are divorced or widowed who are single again. And then in each of those categories, there's all sorts of different experiences that are going on for different people. What was the reason behind their divorce? How old were they when they were widowed? How many kind of almost happened for the never married person? It's impossible to kind of encapsulate the complexity of the topic in that sense. Yeah. And dating cultures within churches tend to have a lot more rails on them. 
Like mm. I remember when I was considering dating somebody when I was in church and I was a young Christian, you get messaging from your church community about how to do that appropriately. Whereas outside of the church, there's fewer rails, there's dating apps, there's lots of different ways to discover and meet people that don't mm. feel as rigid. The thing I found interesting in your book is that idea of single people being in some ways pitiable, but Mm. you were saying that perhaps in early modern Europe that that may not have been as big a thing as it is now. Yeah, and again, our knowledge is limited too, and one of the things that's interesting when we look back at history is it's quite gendered. We surprisingly have a lot more about the reality of being an unmarried woman sort of through the early modern period on than we do having an unmarried man. So we probably need to say that up front as well. But, um, and you would probably remember the statistic more accurately than I do because I wrote the book a long time ago. You've read it more recently. But I think from memory, sort of in the early modern period, it was something like 26% of the English population were actually, of women, were act- were unmarried. Mm. Um, so that, that's a quarter of mm. adult women at that mm. time were not married, were unmarried. When you look at sort of economic history and how those women in particular were placed within the community at the time, they had a degree of independence. They had a degree of social recognition. And, in fact, the other interesting thing is, unless you were in uh, sort of the upper class of of um, Europe, I guess, at that time, women and men tended to marry later than we would have expected them to. In their mid to late 20s was when they married. It was the noble men and women who were marrying in their teens. And so there really was a period of young adulthood where most people would have spent a significant portion of that unmarried, participating in the community, being a productive member of this of the community. And there was a legitimacy that was very much part of that because at that time society was far less individualised and far less nuclearised in the family unit than, than we're used to today. And so there was more of a place for someone who was not the norm, so to speak, than perhaps mm. there is today. Over time, over the centuries, that began to change and that was very closely linked with the changes that came into effect with how society thought about marriage, what the purpose of marriage was, uh, how you selected someone to marry, why you married them, and then how that marriage actually fit into the broader community around them. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting transition because I like how you brought up the nuclear family because that's what I wanted to get into next because I think I'm really fascinated with how the Industrial Revolution changed Mm -hmm. not just uh, the way we consume goods. So we went from being producers, we've mended our own shoes, or you went to and you swapped your bread with uh, with the person who makes butter. Uh, now we have this currency becomes less about, you know, this piece of bread representing capital or currency. Now we have money. Money becomes so much more central to our society. And as a consequence, the family in a sense, becomes divided where mm. the father is sent out of the home. Did you want to get into mm. that? You know yeah, I think it, I think it, it's fascinating. And if anyone, just get, let me give you a book recommendation up the front. If anyone wants to do some more reading about this, there's an excellent book. It's not a Christian book. It's a historical book by an author called Stephanie Kuntz, C-O-O-N-T-Z, and it's called Marriage, A History. And then the subtitle wins it for me every time. The subtitle is How Love Conquered Marriage. And that does go hand in hand with the Industrial Revolution. So, yes, you're right. When the Industrial Revolution really began to take off, what we saw, and I'm speaking very in a nutshell here, but broadly what ended up happening was that the household that had been, as you just said, a unit of production where you sort of lived life with what you were able to do together as a household, but then in engaging with other households in your community as well. The household was very outward focused. It wasn't just a mother, father and their children. It it included extended family. It had apprentices. It had widows. It had orphans. It had servants. And so the household was really outward focusing and engaged in the community around it. The Industrial Revolution over time started taking production out of the household and putting it into the factories and the Mm. capitalist market started emerging. And so what happens is, as as you said, men in particular, though early on it was men, women and children, would leave the household to go and do work in the factories outside the household 
eventually more and more women started staying behind at home. Children were still going off to work in the factories, mind you. But the point was that the household became separated from the place of production. The household was no longer the place of production. It was the unit of consumption. That meant that as men and children ended up going out of the household to work, the house became the place of refuge from the world outside. And remember at the time, the factories were not kind of nice, neat, sanitized places to be working in. They were dirty and hard labor and dangerous a lot of the time. So the household became the place of refuge. Uh, at the same time, what we began to see was, okay, well, the household becomes weakened in terms of its necessary social functioning as a unit. So the emotional bonds within the household become stronger and stronger. This is what keeps the household together. This is what makes the core of relationships within the household rather than we're a unit who works together and loves each other, but we're working together to survive in this world and to thrive in it. That is emptied out. And so emotional bonds become kind of the glue that brings people together in the household. And that also means if you're not sharing those emotional bonds with the servants or with the orphan that you've taken in or with the apprentices, then they get pushed further and further outside the household. And that really brings us um, through the Victorian era. That was that was very much uh, significant. It, the companionate idea of marriage became the central motif of what it was to be married. You married for love. People be, had began to have more agency in choosing who they would marry, why they would marry, when they would marry, and the whole landscape of the household and marriage changed sort of from, you know, sort of the 1700s and a bit before that uh, right through to present day. And even in just the last hundred years, it's changed massively again, I think. Yeah. Ah, that's really interesting. And I think um, if you, anyone's a fan of those kind of Victorian or Regency dramas, yes. you can see this. there's still a bit of a bond to the servants, which mm. I always found a bit mysterious, but that makes a lot of sense. If in the past it was a more familial relationship with a servant, now it became a more um, transaction-based where they're getting paid. And that- even was, um, I was really fascinated to read this not so long ago. That was actually even demonstrated in a way the interior of households changed. Like mm. the, this is crazy, but they invented at some point, I can't remember when, the corridor. They didn't have corridors before. They had rooms that opened into other rooms. The invention of the corridor meant that you had rooms that were closed off from each other. So there became private spaces in the household. Stairs, kind of the ability for people to put stairs into their home meant that you had a downstairs and you had Mm. an upstairs and the servants were downstairs and the family was upstairs. So it's fascinating when you look at how just that cultural sociological development goes hand in hand with the development and changes in the household and marriage and therefore also singleness. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense of how so much more of our design today is more open plan Mm. uh, and there's less distance, fewer corridors and separate rooms. Mm. You also made a point as people move into this more emotional connection as a family, but you also in your book you mentioned that especially in right-wing politics you see people appealing to these family values as a kind of, I guess, a catalyst for changing culture. We're saying, oh, the culture's gotten too individualised, we need to be more communal, but what they're talking about with family values, I feel like that definition, you pointed out that that is kind of unclear. Mm. Um, What do you think they mean by family values and how do you think they affect society? Yeah, so I think that that urge we've become too individualized is a, is a, a right instinct. It's something that I feel, you know, I think a lot of us, if we reflect on it, we do feel that we live in a very individualized culture, which then, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, does feed into the questions of loneliness and mm-hmm. solitude. But when you hear Christians, uh, those who are sort of maybe politically conservative, who may not be Christian, sort of that right wing area of society saying we need to return to the traditional family, we need the family values of the past, what they are almost invariably referring to is actually this very brief period in the 1950s after the Second World War when for really quite a small subset of the population as well were living the dream 
you know, the great American dream, so to speak, of the self-contained household, the, you know, the homemaker mother, the breadwinning father, the 2.5 children with the dog and the white picket fence that in my mind always symbolizes kind of that separation between the household and the world outside. And that was the result of 50 years of social cultural upheaval through two world wars, a depression and all sorts of other things that were going on in the West. That was a brief moment where everybody in society was clamoring for some normality, was clamoring for something that was stable and recognizable and was not going to change. Now, you know, we have this lovely picture of kind of that I love Lucy kind of era of, of the household. <laughs> Actually, what you had was thousands, tens, of, hundreds of thousands of men traumatized by war, you know, huge numbers of widows who had lost their husbands overseas. We think the 1950s was this lovely era of the nuclear family. And then we forget that actually before the 1950s, there was a whole different kind of understanding of the family, um, not just in the immediate decades before, but centuries before, and even, you know, millennia before the family looked very different. So when people are talking about the traditional family, they're talking about something that is as traditional as just 50 years ago and lasted for basically a decade before the 1960s came along and revolution just kind of swept through the West. So we have very short and I think unimaginative memories when we talk about that. Now, there could be value in saying that period actually, I mean, I I would want to challenge some of this, but someone might say that period was wonderful. There was great value to be found in that. It would be really good to recapture elements of that. That's, That's one thing to argue, but to argue that we need to go back to the way family should always be and always meant to be is just it's it's a misunderstanding of history and how human society has worked um, throughout the millennia. And just, I actually think is kind of a bit of a, a demonstration of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, that we <laughs> kind of, you know, we live in the time when we know how to do things best, that humans are always progressing so that they become more and more perfect as humans in society, uh, rather than actually we're just all living at different moments in, in history that have different contexts and different ways of doing things as society and as individuals. Yeah, and I felt like your survey just made sense of that idealism and it was so good to remember how brief it was and what had happened to lead to that and how much people even rebelled against that, um, those very specific and rigid roles in the end. Mm. And that's because we had so much diversity before that. So I'm kind of jumping around a bit because I just had all the questions I want to ask Danny, but let's try and see. Jump around. This one. <laughs> sure. Um, when I was growing up, so I went to a, a Catholic school and, you know, there was a lot of nuns and nuns were in popular culture everywhere. And I remember being very fascinated with the idea of that kind of pure singleness that, that comes with being a nun. So there was Agnes of God, uh, Sister Act 1 and 2 were massive. Uh, yeah. You had the Blues Brothers. That was awesome. And they represented the sacred in our in our popular films and in the world. But I read a stat that there are only 6,000 nuns left in Australia, and that was in mm-hmm. 2013. So um, I'm wondering if, because I, I also read, and I'll keep going here, that on TikTok the celibacy hashtag is trending. So there are regular secular people who were on dating apps, and then just went, you know what, I'm not really enjoying this very much. And so there's voluntary celibacy going on. So what I'd really like to get is your take on the celibate person, either as a vision of the sacred or as a, a person who's just choosing a different lifestyle. What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, there's another thing we have in common. I went to a Catholic high school too that had mm-hmm. nuns. Um, so our headmistress was Sister Janet. I grew up going to an Anglican church, but, um, went to this local, this Catholic high school. So yeah, I had some familiarity with that as well. And it is fascinating, isn't it? To, to mm. see. I haven't thought about Sister Act for a very long time, but you're right. <laughs> Being a nun was cool sort of in the late 80s, early 90s, whenever that was. Yeah, uh, um, and it's still a great film. I watched it recently. Highly recommend it. <laughs> Everyone should watch it. <laughs> it is interesting that celibacy is having a bit of a heyday, though I want to come back and put some caveats on that. But I, I've done a little bit of reading that seems to be indicating that Younger people, I'm no longer one of the younger generations. <laughs> I'm not quite sure when that happened, but I'm not anymore. 
I'm a, I'm a grumpy middle-aged woman now, I think. But younger people, there seems to be stats coming out that younger people, not just Christians, just younger people, again, in the West, are having less sex than the their parents' generation and even just the generations above them. It seems that even as the world has become increasingly sexualized and perhaps because of the way the world is becoming just overwhelmingly sexualized, the stats are saying that younger people are having less sex than those mm. who are older than them did. So I think there is a link there between that and kind of this, this revival of celibacy. Having said that, I think just as we said singleness is a word that does a lot of heavy lifting, I think celibacy is too. I um, uh, Last year, the year before, uh, SBS, which is an Australian TV um, channel, was doing uh, an insight episode on celibacy and a friend of mine was one of the people being interviewed on it. But they had, you know, a bunch of different people talking about celibacy. And what became so clear to me is that, again, everybody was using word very differently. My mm. friend who was on it had decided to remain single. He was a Christian man in his, at that time, mid-20s and had decided that he was planning to remain single and therefore sexually celibate for his life. But there were other people on that who were talking about celibacy as a period. Like, I'm, mm. I'm living it, I'm, I'm being, I'm celibate. That is, I'm not actively having sex right now. They were anticipating that there would be a time when they would. Mm. Now, the old word for that would have just been abstinence. I, I'm, I'm not celibate. I'm abstaining from sex now. You know, there was a, there was a woman on it who was married, but she had, um, all sorts of horrific medical conditions going on that meant having sex with her husband was actually incredibly painful. And so she was talking about her celibacy. So. You know, as celibacy is trending on TikTok, part of my question is, and I, I don't tend to look at TikTok, so I don't know what's going on there, but my part of my question is, well, what is being, what is being meant by that? I suspect part of what might be meant is young people reclaiming their agency in kind of deciding whether they will or will not have sex, how often they will or will not, and that actually they don't need to be having sex in a kind of hookup culture context to be living lives that they see as being valuable and and full. Mm. Christians are going to use celibacy in some ways quite different, but I've even got some concerns with how Christians are starting to use celibacy too. So, again, it's a word that does a lot of heavy lifting and we need to unpack to find out what's going on there. Yeah, and I agree. I'm not on TikTok either. I just watch them on Instagram reels like a middle-aged woman should. (laughs) Me too, yes. respectable middle-aged women that we are. <laughs> That's right. I'm too old. But look, um, I love learning what people are doing. It's always interesting. Um, yeah. And I, I like that. I like that idea of reclaiming agency. I think that's a really positive thing. But I, yeah, I like that you've distinguished between temporary abstinence. It's almost, and they often describe it in this uh, time to clear their head and figure out what they want, what's mm. important. And yeah, as you said, that's a very different thing than as a Christian, having a very strong conviction that you are to remain sexually celibate and abstain from sex for the rest of your life. That's a very, very different and much more challenging decision. Or even so long as you remain unmarried. You know, yes. I, I, am sexually celibate, that may change. Mm. Uh, you know, um, I don't know. It may, it may not. Uh, so I haven't committed to a vow of lifelong celibacy, but I have committed as a Christian, given my understanding of scripture um, and what God calls me to do as someone who isn't married, to be uh, <laughs> one of the old historical words that I kind of would like to see us revive, but I think it's too complicated and you'll understand why when I say it. <laughs> the word that was used historically to talk about uh, being, living a life as a Christian that's sexually appropriate to your situation in life mm. was sexual, was sexual continence. I quite like the word continence. You know, I'm being continent sexually as a single Christian. Unfortunately, continence in our day and age has other <laughs> implications as well. Yeah. Um, it's on those pads you buy. Those special continents undies you buy as well. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. And so, you know, the word celibacy, abstinence, continence, is, it's kind of a spectrum of different things that we're talking about at that point, which again just goes to show why we need to have the conversations rather than assume that we know what we're all talking about. Yeah, I like that. It's always good to have a conversation and clarify what you mean. Yeah. Um, the thing I'd love to lean into now is another kind of vision of our single person. So we've got 
like perhaps 80s and 90s again, or was it early 2000s? We had Bridget Jones, right? And Bridget mm-hmm. Jones represents the single woman, the singleton who challenges the the ideas of uh, uh, don't be a smug married person, but she's also very, very keen to be coupled at the same time. And we have this, I rewatched Bridget Jones's diary recently and it's that wonderful scene of her singing all by myself into her hairbrush and she's wearing her jammies. Um, but do you think that perceptions about singleness might have changed a bit since that kind of Bridget Jonesy vibe? Yes and no. I mean, that that is the complexity of Bridget Jones and also Sex and the City. I didn't ever watch Sex and the City, so I'm sort of just going off what I understand about it more broadly from popular culture. But both of those shows, and I'm sure others like them that we could think of, kind of it was a paradox. It was kind of the single woman asserting herself and trying to kind of reconcile herself, not reconcile, be okay with her singleness and and demand that other people be okay with her singleness Mm. while the whole time trying to be (laughs) unsingle. So, you know, with Bridget Jones, it's, it's not being married it's that's the bad thing. It's being the smug married. It's actually about the the attitude and the tone. Marriage or at least romantic coupling is kind of the end goal. And I think we see that in Sex and the City, perhaps a little less obviously from what I understand. Mm. So that, you know, even then there was a bit of a, a paradox going on there. Mm. Today, I mean, you know, as you move into popular culture today, I'm thinking, who are the equivalents? Well, Elsa from Frozen is kind of, you know, maybe the most obvious one, which I have watched. Um, <laughs> I have a, a, a niece and nephew who are very, very much fans of Elsa. Um, and her, her singleness is almost even not, it's not even a feature. Mm. What's, what it's about for her and for other kind of heroines like her is self-discovery, self-assertion, kind of becoming your authentic self. And so at that point, her singleness or lack thereof is kind of, it's a secondary issue. You know, maybe it's in the the third or fourth movie that we actually get to see the fully self-realised Elsa. I don't think, there's a sec Frozen 2, I haven't seen that. I don't think she hooks up with anyone, does she, in Frozen 2? No, but I did come across a very strange Tumblr community that was shipping Elsa with Jack Frost from the Guardians, which your niece and nephew would also really enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. I mean, but that in itself says something that we live in a society where, you know, okay, well, yes, she's had this this journey of self-realisation and self-expression, but it's not yet complete because to be ultimately complete means that she needs to find total fulfillment in a kind of a relationship. Yeah. Hashtag Jelsa. Um, yeah, it's really old ship community that there's so many shipping communities. They're really funny. I find them so amusing. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, and I reckon we should lean into the, the other half idealism here. So mm. it seems like on social media, if you don't, if you're not trumpeting how wonderful your husband or wife is, either your relationship isn't that great. <laughs> Mm. Like, cause I deliberately don't do it because my husband's really finds it really embarrassing. But I remember you also saying, Hey guys, when you, sh- when you say, Oh, my husband is so great. I'm so fulfilled. It does make people feel a bit left out. Did you want to mm. lean into the, that social phenomenon? Yeah, sure. And you know, let me say up front, I, I rejoice in my friends' marriages and relationships. I love seeing my married friends celebrate their spouse particularly when there's someone I also know well. And so, you know, when my good my good friend who is a husband to another good friend of mine, his wife, you know, kind of celebrates her on Facebook or something, I love that because that's not just something that's been between the two of them. I can see what he's saying about her, even as he's saying it as her husband rather than her friend. But where I think it does trouble me is and this is actually the trouble comes yes for those of us who are single and and don't sort of have that one person but also for the married people who do see that one person and the weight that then gets put on that one person in the way that we think about life now to be the be all and and end all to mm. you know so you know to throw in another old pop culture reference um i use this reference quite often when I'm speaking somewhere and I'm I'm in despair about how few people have actually seen the movie because it makes me feel really old. But Jerry Maguire, mm. you know, I think late 90s maybe, early 2000s, uh, 
Tom Cruise comes to Renee Zellweger and at the end, kind of the grand gesture moment, and he looks at her really intently and a bit creepily, really, and says, you complete me. You know, it's this, this is the idea. This, I think, was very representative of the way that we think about not just sent to, not just marriage, but the relationship with the one that mm. we need someone to complete us. And I think that that does get demonstrated in the way that we do tend to talk about marriage today and particularly our spouse that, mm. you know, it's not simply, I just love that this person is my husband or my wife and this is why I love it. But go and have a look at the anniversary posts that come up on social media and just observe how many of them talk about being, for example, married to their very best friend. Mm. So now the ideal of what friendship should be, the, the, you know, the best that friendship has to offer is now also meant to be found in your spouse. Of course, your spouse should be your friend. I want to make that very clear. But that's different to saying, I'm so glad to be married to my very best friend. Because now we're actually saying, well, your spouse is not just these things which your spouse ought to be, but they actually have the expectation of being your very best friend as well. They become the emotional kind of capstone of everything in your life. And I'm, yes, that that then for the single person makes them think like, okay, well, I've just got second best friendships. I don't actually have the ideal of that. I don't get to experience genuine intimacy because that person could always leave me when they get married and therefore automatically become someone else's very best friend. So yes, it has implications for the single person, but Mm. I'm just as concerned about the implications it has for the married person. I'm, I'm just as concerned about the enormous weight that we and expectations that we're putting on our marriages and we, you know, we only have to look at the number of divorces around us to know that marriages are tough and complex and we fail each other at times. Thankfully, the divorce rate seems to have stabilised. It hasn't decreased, I don't think, but it, it's stabilised. But, you know, that shouldn't be just enough for us to go, oh, well, there's not more people getting divorced. There's still a, enough people getting divorced that I think we need to actually have the hard conversations about what expectations we have of our spouses and what our marriages are going to do for us relationally. Yeah, and that's it. It's that expectation that your husband is your or, or wife is uh, your best friend, your life partner, your like someone that you're very sexually fulfilled with, and they also may be a work partner or something. Or mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot of pressure, and yeah. I've I've seen a lot of different marriages, and some of them where people have everything in common, and some of them where they just they don't, but they just are. It's a good marriage anyway. Oh, and to help you with your um, Jerry Maguire reference, so that people know what you're talking about, have you seen the Lego Batman film? Lego. Yeah, oh, no. Is it in that? It is. There's a really great reference to Jerry Maguire where Batman watches Jerry Maguire and laughs when he says that line of you can Oh, see brilliant. Me. It's so brilliant. good. And your millennials may have seen it. You never know. <laughs> great. Yeah, love it. Um, so how do you think single people can remind themselves that they are complete without this extra person, this other half? Okay, so my question at that point is, are we talking Christian singles? Are we talking sort of broadly singles? Where, where do you want to go with Maybe that? you speak first to people that don't have a faith and then to Christians. Well, in some ways the answer is kind of tied up because, well, yeah. let me give you what my answer is and then what I would encourage single and those who don't have a faith. You know, the, the Bible talks about that life to the full, you know, the fullest of life, life to the full is found in Jesus. So as someone who has a relationship with Jesus, I hold on to that confidence, that hope that actually the fullest life has to offer me, um, and not just in this life, but the life to come is found in him. And so as then I talk to Christians who aren't married, I think the challenge there is to be able to rejoice in the fact that marriage does actually lead to a particular kind of fullness. You know, there's great blessings and benefits and joys that come from marriage. But if as Christians we believe life to the full is in Jesus, then we need to be challenged when we slip into thinking that we find ourselves thinking, well, marriage is where you experience life to the full as a Christian. We also shouldn't be thinking that singleness is where you experience life to the full more than marriage. I think the promise of Jesus is that life to the full is found in him. So wherever you are, whatever your context, in relationship with him and therefore in relationship with other people, that the promise of life to the full is yours. Uh, And so that doesn't mean that we can't have fulfilling lives 
that there isn't fulfillment to be found outside of Jesus. The world that we live in is a good world that God has created. He's created us with good bodies, in good relationships. And so, of course, you know, people who don't have a faith in Christ are able to make great enjoyment of the created goods in this world and their place in it. At the same time, Jesus is very upfront that if we want to know life to the absolute full and life everlasting, it's found in him rather than in any of the created goods, whether that is marriage or sex or friendship or anything else, um, even as those things do remain good in this life. Yeah, and I think um, apart from that idealisation of romantic love and feeling like, oh, missing out on something, we might also idealise uh, sex. And and as we've seen, there's been a movement away from that. People are going, it's, you know, there's been some disappointment there. But I kind of want to get into a little bit of a funny Christian tick that we have, and mm. that's we have a little bit of, like I haven't seen it in my churches, but I hear about purity culture. So there's, I might just explain that just a mm. touch before I handball it to you, is in churches they might see ideas about how people dress, how people interact with the opposite sex and whether men and women should even have friendships if they're not dating. So that's... Yeah. That's a, a kind of a Christian culture, which will look very different to um, people who are outside of that church. So how do you think we can process the teachings of the Bible without isolating people and separating them out through our th- those rules about men and female relationships? Yeah, it's a tough one. And I mean, purity culture, its vestiges are still around, and I'm sure it's still alive and well in certain pockets of, um, you know, Christianity. It really was very big in the 90s and the noughties, and, and we're still living with the implications of that in lots of ways. And, it, you know, it promised, the promises of purity culture were many, but, you know, key to them was if you save yourself for marriage, if you remain pure, then God is going to reward you with the most fulfilling, you know, sexually wonderful marriage that you could possibly imagine. And so many people are now, you know, a couple of decades on going, well, that promise didn't come true. I got married and my marriage fell apart. You know, Mm -hmm. I kept myself sexually pure and the husband never came. Um, So there's all sorts of um, complexities arising from that that I think are right challenges to be offering. But I... I think that part of, you know, the the Christian tick, as I think you rightly called it, here with purity culture and really, you know, the modern, the modern approach to thinking about this today in the, in the 2020s has to do with us confusing sex and sexuality. Now, what I mean by that is we tend to talk about our sexuality as humans as just about having sex, who we want to have sex with, when we want to, how we want to do that. It, we, we kind of think about sex as just being about sexual intercourse, to put it very bluntly. And so if sex is just about what you do with your genitals and who you do them with, then actually, oh, well, gosh, any kind of relationship between a man and a woman could be fraught at that point because mm-hmm. the end goal of sex and your sexual nature is to have sex. Um, that's the kind of thinking. But I think Actually, when we look at, when we look at scripture, when we look at the understanding what it is to have been created human, we have been created with a sexual nature as either male or female, Genesis says. It's not that the end goal or the most ideal way to be a man or a male or a female, or when I say in gendered language, a man or a woman. It's not like the way that you be a man or you be a woman is to get married. To get married and to have sex is an expression of embodied maleness or embodied femaleness in relationship. But as a single person who's never had sex and may never get married, it's not like I have no sexual nature. It's not like I'm not yet a woman. I'm not actually haven't realised my female perspective. You know, so even you and I in this conversation have had numerous moments of connection where as women of a certain age who have grown up in a certain place, we're relating to each other as women in a way that would be a bit different if there was a guy in the mix. Not bad different, but just a bit different. Mm. And so I as a woman am relating as a woman because of my sexual nature as female in all of my relationships in this world. Yes, there may be a point in my life when that femaleness is directed towards and my sexuality is directed towards sexual union with a husband. But if we can come to grips with the fact that actually being sexual is about much, much, much more 
than just having sex. That mm. gives us, I think, a, a freedom to explore, all right, well, what does it mean to live as a female in this world relating to other females that I'm not married to, relating to other men that I'm not married to, some of which I'm biologically related to, most of whom I'm not? You know, um, it's actually having a much broader vision of what it is to be sexual that mm. I think then can actually impact the way that we think about being sexual creatures in this world who aren't at some point having sex with another person or choosing very carefully why we're having sex with the person that we're having sex with. Yeah, and that's that's a lot of sex. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I often it, joke to people, if, if they'd said to me 10 years ago, Danny, you'll be doing podcasts of a podcast talking lots about sex, I think I would have run screaming out of the room and moved out of the country because I never anticipated that this is where I would be. But here I am as a single woman who's never had sex, spending a lot of time talking about sex. And I think it's really beautiful because I think we can um, – Obviously, we don't sit down and simmer down the person that we're talking to as, does this person have value for my sexual fulfillment? But it is really good to think about people as whole people. Mm. Yes. And, and as gendered people, we go, um, our children, I have a, a male child and a female child, and mm. they're both very beautiful in their own ways. And they're both mm. single and they're not yet even thinking in that world. And it is so nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, their discovery yeah. of the world is um, still gendered, but very, they're exploring a completely different area. So mm. I thought we, as we get to the end now, we'll make sure that we um, try and answer some of the questions about being alone. So the question I have is, you know, why do we fear being alone? So as a person growing up, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I grew up in a home where my mum and dad kind of the messaging was, oh, one day when you're married, you will do X. And uh, and I find myself trying not to say that with my own children. I'm thinking that may not happen. So how do you mm. think we can talk about, and this is just in everyday life, I, I feel like we can automatically assume, oh, if you're married, you understand. Like how do we... How do we help people feel less alone and how do we talk about marriage in a way that honours the whole person? Mm. I think to answer your first, you know, the first part of your question, why do we why do we not want to be alone? Well, I think because we weren't created to be alone. In fact, when we look at the Bible, you know, the, the second chapter of the Bible is very clear that it is not good for man to be alone. Now, Christians too often, I think, rush to, it's not good for Adam to not have a wife. Actually, what is going on there in that passage in Genesis, for those who are familiar with it, you can go and look it up, you'll be able to read it yourself. God creates everything and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he says, there's one thing that is not good and that is man alone. Adam was literally the only human person in the garden. He was quite literally alone. It's not simply he was sad and lonely without a wife. He, there was no one else like him. And God says, that's not good. You know, God was mm. there in perfect relationship with Adam, but it's still not good that man be alone. And we have been created for community. We've been created to work in this world, to enjoy this world, to worship God together. We, and so why we fear being alone is because that's actually part of our constitution. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be okay in that sense with being alone. We've been made to crave intimacy. We've been made to crave re relationship. Most importantly, I believe with God, but with each other as well. So the, the, the challenge for us today, I think, whether we are, we are, we're people of faith or people who don't have a faith is actually to recognize the immense opportunities for intimacy that exist in our world, in our relationships. Marriage is one of them, and it's a unique one of them in all sorts of ways, living with someone, committing and promising to be in an exclusive, lifelong, monogamous marriage with this person whose interest you're going to put before your own is a, is a very unique form of, of intimacy. But it's not, it's not like the cream that rises to the top as the best you know, the ideal form of intimacy and everything else is substandard. You know, the, the intimacy I have, the relationship I have with my niece and my nephew, they're six and three. I was just upstairs. She came over. I was just upstairs. She just came and gave me a big cuddle and she just puts her head on my shoulder and just stays there for minutes just because she loves me. You know, that intimacy is something unique and special. The friendships I have, you know, Jesus says in John, I should know the chapter. 
I can't remember what it is, maybe 17, but I think that's wrong. Uh, Jesus says the greatest love, there is no greater love than being willing to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus Mm. calls his disciples his friends. We need to rediscover the incredible immense value of friendship in our world today, not just siloing it off into marriage and saying that's where you find the best that friendship has to offer, but all of the different depths and levels and values of, of friendship across relationships. So the challenge I think for us is to recognise we're not meant to be alone. Uh, I, I don't know if you've watched, um, throw another pop culture reference, the Alone series where they've just done an Australian one but there's been lots around the world where they send 10 people off into the wilderness to survive for as long as they can alone. Most of them who tap out, don't tap out because they're starving to death or because they've been mauled by a bear or anything like that. They tap out because they cannot stand the solitude. They thought they would be able to cope with it. They thought they were made for this kind of life. They would be fine. So many of them just get to a point where they go, I can't, this is no, I can't do this. I am craving human fellowship. Mm. That's because that's how God's made us. So we ought to crave intimacy we need to stop siphoning intimacy off into just this one relationship where we find the ultimate form of intimacy, but actually see that there's a whole web of intimate opportunities available for us. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think um I know that this is, we're talking at this high level and we're talking at this societal level, but I think uh, quite a practical thing that we can all do in response to thinking about this is to think about how we can share the friendship or the intimacy with other people. So um, it's very easy to just go, oh, I'm going to tell, share this with my spouse. I'm going to send, oh. So I often will just text my other friends more, as much more often these days and I realise yeah. how rich my life feels when I'm not just going, oh, honey, look at this cool link. It's yeah. Um, it's going, I want to, I want to have a, like in marriage classes, they talk about bids for connection. So you make a bid for connection with your friend. You send them a, a cute animal video or something. And it's, um, or your, your niece comes and puts her head on your shoulder. And it's, it's such a wonderful, beautiful thing, human interaction and relationship. I love that. So I think we've covered so many of the things I wanted to talk about. And I think we've come to a really good conclusion there, but. One last thing I wanted to ask you, and, and you've talked a lot about your faith, but you've dedicated your, like so much of your time. You've done this, uh, from reading your book, you, you've been thinking about this for a very long time before you even did this PhD and wrote your book. Why do you think, uh, this topic is so important to you? Well, it's important to me because I am a Christian woman who's not married. I had expected, like you did, you know, you grew up thinking, oh, when I get married, for me, that hasn't happened yet. It may happen, but the older I get, the kind of I think the more likely I think it is that I, it probably won't happen. Uh, and so as I've aged, I've had to grapple with, well, hang on, what does it mean to be um, a woman, <laughs> you know, Australian woman, a woman in ministry and, and thinking theologically who is a Christian who isn't married? So certainly for me it's been a personal thing. But also I am a Christian who has worked in ministry and part of that was spending a lot of time with other women who had either never been married or who were widowed and divorced, uh, were struggling, and there were some men as well, but mainly women, were struggling to work out how do they do this in the church. Those who are listening who who are Christians would probably feel familiar with this. If you're not a Christian, you may not realise that actually being single in the church can be really isolating. The mm-hmm. church is not actually very good, by and large, at at welcoming and celebrating and rejoicing in singleness, even though on average in Australia 33% of every church congregation across denominational boards is unmarried uh, of the adult population. We're just not very good at it. And that is devastating for the individual single, but I actually think it's devastating for the church as a whole as well. Um, if, if we are people who really do believe that life to the full is found in Jesus, um, that, you know, it is in, it is in his life and his death and his resurrection that we find, um, true relationship with God and therefore true relationship with each other rather than whether we have a ring on our finger or not. That means that I think this is actually a really, really important topic for us to be grappling with mm. in this life as we look forward 
to the next life. And really that's what my whole book is about, about life in the, in the next world that the Bible talks about and how that helps us think about marriage and singleness now. Thanks for doing that plug. That is one thing I really like about your book. It is that sort of end times. What does the future hold and what are we going to be like and how relevant are the relationships we have now to that? But, uh, yeah. So the last thing I wanted to say was, yeah, I really enjoy the work you're doing challenging me and other people who read your tweets about how to make our churches more welcoming and more loving rather than going, oh, look at that nice family. We go, oh, great. That there's a person here. We call all people households rather than going, oh, families, because mm. we feel like household is a better term that can um, reflect that complexity of how people live. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, you know, the, the Bible speaks about the church being in the language of family. You know, it, it talks about, you know, the primary relationship that those who are Christians have with each other is not as husband and wife. Um, but as brother and sister in Christ, as sons and daughters of God. That's, that's the language that God has given us to kind of think about the framing of what it means to be in relationship with each other in this life, but also in the life to come. Uh, and so the language of family is actually really, really important in church, mm. but we need to put the right goggles on <laughs> as we're using that language, I think, to make sure that the way we're using it is reflecting the God's word rather than the, the societal norms around us. Yeah. And the church being the family, not the people, uh, within it in, in, well, obviously there are individual families, mm. but reflecting yeah. that we're all part of a bigger family. Yeah. Church, the church isn't an association of individual families. The church is a family, um, that we're all equally part of. And that's something that I pray we can grow in there. Okay. Um, thanks so much for joining us on the show. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And, uh, if anyone wants to see what Danny's up to, she's on Twitter and she writes in her Substack and she has lots of opinions and they're great. So. <laughs> some, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are okay. <laughs> well, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks, Amy. hope you enjoyed this episode of Deeper Questions. Why am I still alone? Are you feeling alone? I hope this episode made you think about how being alone doesn't have to mean being lonely. Being alone isn't a bad thing, but feeling like you don't fit in can make you feel lonely. We didn't have time to go super hard into the history of singleness. I think you'll find Danny's book really helpful if you want to explore that more. I found it so interesting to see that unmarried men and women fit into society back in the medieval era. I assumed that unmarried men and women ended up on the fringes of society or entering a religious order. What struck me the most about this topic is that at its heart, being single is about being human. In many ways, if we can embrace it, it's about being human in the most basic sense. We're often different people when we're in different relationships and being single means we can lean harder into friendship, being an aunt or uncle, a grandparent, mentor or workmate. There are so many ways that we can live rich and full lives without romance or married companionship. When we recognise that being single is normal, healthy and human, it's a bit less scary. As Danny said... Marriage and romantic relationships are not the most important ones to our flourishing as human beings. Danny would argue, and as a Christian, I would agree that our relationship with God is the most essential to our human nature. As I started preparing for this episode, I was listening to an old Sinead O'Connor album, Faith and Courage. My favourite song on the album is No Man's Woman. At first it feels like an exhilarating feminist celebration But as the song moves on into the bridge, she talks about having a loving man, but one who is a spirit. He never does me harm, never treats me bad. He'll never take away all the love he has. And I'm forgiven, oh, a million times. Danny's reference to Jesus talking about laying down his life for his friends came from John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus never married or had any romantic relationships that we know of, but he treasured his relationships with his friends. John chapters 14 to 17 is a speech that Jesus gives to his closest friends the night before he died, for their sins and for ours. 
It's a beautiful part of the Bible and one of my favourites, which shows the depth of Jesus' love for his friends and the reason he came to earth. I hope this episode spoke to you. If you're thinking about going to church but feel like it would be weird after your divorce or because you don't know anyone there, I hope this episode helps you feel that Jesus would welcome you. Amy Isham, and this was Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, click the like button on your podcast app, subscribe and share it on your socials, or even better, DM it to a friend who you care about.